Well, good morning, church. Okay, y'all are more awake than I thought you'd be this morning. Can we give it up one more time for our singing men of Mount Horeb? It is such a gift to have them with us this morning. For those of you I have not had the pleasure of meeting quite yet, I'm Emma Murphy, the Congregational Care Pastor here at Mount Horeb, and I'm excited to be here this morning to share God's Word with all of you. Um, I'm, just, I'm surprised to see this many of you after we all lost an hour of sleep last night. Anyone feeling that this morning? Beth Hay is. Yep. I am too, girl. I'm already ready for my afternoon nap. Um, I always nap on Sunday afternoon, but I'm especially napping today. But even though we lost an hour of sleep, we gained an hour of daylight, and I'm here for it. I am so excited about longer days and getting to be outside a little bit longer, even though this weather today is not proving to be an outside day. But I'm excited about it. I know we all missed having Pastor Bill here last weekend, but I do want you guys to know that he is feeling better and will be joining us in just another couple weeks to share in this series as well. But I am thankful for technology and being able to stream Pastor Trevor into the sanctuary last week so no one missed out on the first week of our brand new series, how he kicked off talking about how Jesus is a greater Adam, a greater Man, And today we're going to continue in our sermon series, Jesus is Greater. One of my favorite things to do is to go whitewater rafting. Have any of you ever been whitewater rafting? A few? Yes? Okay. See some hands. Well, growing up, my youth group would go a few times, um, a few times throughout my high school years to go to the Ocoee River in Tennessee to raft for a few days um, down the Ocoee River, and it was super fun, so I highly recommend it if you've never done it. And before you even go on the river, you have to sit through, like, this crash course in what to do, you know, how to sit on the raft, how to row the raft, and what to do if you fall out of the raft. So if you're in the water, the first rule is you are supposed to do nose and toes. I would demonstrate for you this morning, but I might be able to get down, but I don't know if I'll be able to get back up with these heels on. Um, but anyway, so if you fall out of the boat, you're supposed to be on your back and have your nose and your toes pointing out of the water because that is the safest way to travel down the river without you know, hurting yourself too badly. But they also tell you if you fall out and you can to grab the, the rope on the side of the raft and they say a few other things, you know, but no one really pays attention because you're with professionals and it's all okay until it's not. So after my sophomore year of high school, there were about 60 of us in our youth group and we went to the Ocoee River and we traveled in about 10 rafts down the river. We split up between 10 rafts and you all kind of travel pretty close together. And so my group, we were about to go down this uh, class four rapid. And so we watched the raft in front of us go down. And we also watched as one of our youth leaders tumbled out of the raft. And I, I think he um, didn't remember that he was supposed to grab the rope. And he also forgot the nose and toes thing because he was kind of just flailing his body all over the place. And we didn't really understand um, how serious the situation was until we saw the guide kind of freaking out, getting the rest of them through the rapid and then had to resort to plan C of the rescue by throwing the bag of rope out to him so that he could pull himself in. We knew that he needed rescue. 
He walked away with minor injuries, which is good, but we all paid a little bit closer attention to that crash course in rescues on the Okoe River next time we went. Today, we are going to open up our Bibles and read about another rescue story in the text that just also happens to deal with water. And it's probably one of the stories that we're most familiar with in the scriptures. And if you grew up in the church, it's probably one of the first stories you learned as a child. Any guesses? No? Noah and the ark. I think I heard a few people out there. You know, the sweet, sweet story about Noah and his family on a big boat and all the animals came in two by two and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and God protected them and brought a rainbow afterwards. All my research this week has actually caused me to get those ark encounter ads all over my social media. So I might have to go and visit. But even worse... I think my studies this week kind of ruined this child outlook on the narrative, this innocent outlook. This story is not all sweet and special about animals and a little rain and a big boat and a rainbow. Honestly, it's it's kind of sad and pretty dark. And so in order to do this narrative justice, let's dive deeper in together and really understand who this Noah guy is and what we can glean from his life and how it plays a role in the greater story of God's redemptive plan for the world. If we recall what Pastor Trevor talked about last week, we got a brief walk through the story of creation. How God made, you know, the heavens, the earth, the sky, the ground, the water, the plants, the animals, and humans. And he looked out and he saw that everything was what? Good. Everything was good. But then Adam and Eve chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin entered the picture. And so humans from then on were born into sin. And y'all, it's all downhill from there. Fast forward about 1,600 years and Noah comes on the scene. And this is where our story picks up today. And so we're going to start in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. This is what the text says. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So what does the author of Genesis say was going on during this time? Nothing good. Every inclination of the human heart was evil. The world was overwhelmed with wickedness. For creation was not the way God intended it to be. And so God looks out at all of creation and and what it has become, and he decides enough is enough. Enough is enough. Something has got to change. And so what does he do? He chooses to judge the world through sending a flood to wipe out the wickedness that had corrupted it. But this decision is not an irrational one on God's part. Rather, he provides a means of salvation. And he recruits a guy named Noah who is called a righteous man in the scriptures to help him save humanity from complete destruction. 
He instructs Noah to build a very large vessel called an ark. And he gives him specific dimensions, what it needs to look like, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he tells Noah also to bring two of every kind of animal and every kind of food to be eaten along with him on the ark. And finally, he says to Noah, I'm going to bring these floodwaters to destroy all the earth, all the life and every creature, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will get to be on the ark and your wife and your sons and your son's wives. And so Noah does just as God commands him. He's completely obedient to this task at hand, and it's a pretty big task. A year ago, Truman and I bought um, a new piece of furniture for our kitchen. It's like a small cupboard, you know, to hold glasses and things like that. And it was bought off of Amazon, so you know that it wasn't already assembled when it came. Rather, it came in this box with like a million different pieces and parts in this 50-page book of instructions. Okay, well, maybe not that long, but a little dramatic, but it felt that way. And so I remember going back and looking at the picture of this cupboard and thinking, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, we can build this, no problem. But when I opened that box and saw all of those pieces and parts, I was a little overwhelmed at the task we had at hand. And sure enough, four hours later, Truman and I had a completed cupboard, but almost a finished marriage. <laughs> they don't tell you in premarital counseling that constructing a piece of furniture is the true test of whether your marriage will survive or not. And so if I was overwhelmed by the task of building this small piece of furniture for my kitchen, I can only imagine how Noah felt when God gave him the instructions to build an ark. I mean, I'm not a builder or an engineer or anything, so these dimensions, they don't really mean that much to me. But I can tell you from everything I've read that this is a very, very, very big boat, like huge. There isn't something, you know, Noah can just like get up and, you know, grab some wood and a few nails and a hammer and go out and put it together. No, this project took like a really long time, like over a hundred years long. And not only that, but Noah has to wrangle two of every kind of animal and get them on this very big boat. I mean, I've got a, a new puppy and she is really cute, but I can tell you that he did not have an easy job getting all those animals on the boat. But besides how difficult this task was, imagine what people thought about Noah. I mean, he was the talk of the town. We have this man building this giant boat in the middle of an area that's most likely desert. And so I'm sure he was ridiculed, made fun of, mocked, taunted, all because he chose to be obedient to God. I mean, this wasn't some like hidden project from the rest of the world. People could see Noah working on this construction site. And so I'm sure several people stopped and asked him what in the world he was doing because they thought he was crazy. But also in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. The Greek word for preacher here actually means herald or the one who announces. So not only could people see, visibly see what Noah was doing, but he was also verbally giving them a warning of what was to come. Noah was asking people to repent during this hundred year task. You see, God waited patiently for the people to respond. For over a hundred years, he waited for them to change something about their lives and have heartfelt reform. In the Gospel of Matthew, we get an account of exactly what was going on in these days. The Gospel writer declares, 
For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. People were living the way they wanted to live and didn't have concern for what was to come. Sure, Noah warned them about the flood. They could see this giant wooden ship being built, but they chose not to repent, not to respond. As I was studying the story this week, I kept asking myself, why? Why would the people choose not to respond if they had been given all of these warnings for all of these years? They could have been saved. They could have had a place on that ark. But the truth is, God gave them, and he gives us, the gift of free will. And that gives us the opportunity to make wise choices and not so wise choices. And I believe they decided not to make the wise choice and didn't respond because they had yet to actually see the rain. They figured they had plenty of time. And so they kept on giving in to their own desires and pleasures. But God could only be patient for so long. This wickedness, this evil, this sin, it had to end. It had to be punished. And so God, as a loving parent, had to save the people from themselves. Enough is enough. And so the rain began to pour. I'm afraid this story is dangerously familiar for us as well. How often do we ignore the warnings and choose to live our lives the way we want to live them? We make decisions that not only benefit, I mean, that, that only benefit ourselves, but those decisions often can lead to our demise. I'm not a parent yet, but I have parents, and I guess I have a puppy, so that kind of counts. But a big part of raising children is punishment, right? Discipline. There were so many times in my life growing up that my parents reprimanded me and my siblings. Don't touch the hot eye on the stove. Don't talk back to your teacher. Don't hit your brother or sister in the face. They didn't punish me because they wanted to destroy me. They punished me because they loved me. And they wanted me to stop going down a path that led to further destruction. They wanted to stop me from making decisions that were detrimental to my own life, but that would also negatively affect those around me. That punishment, that judgment was sometimes painful, but necessary. So often we go about our days living how we want to live and ignoring God's best for our lives. We have this mindset that it's my time, my money, my relationships, my success, my marriage, and I can act and say and do whatever I want with them. We like to test the reins a little bit too. Maybe I'll change something about that part of my life later, but not right now. And we've probably all figured out at some point in our lives that these choices eventually catch up to us. Our friendships, our jobs, our marriages, our integrity, our relationship with God, they are affected and hurt. The rain begins to pour and floods begin to rise in our own lives. But God wants so, so, so much more for us. But the story of Noah doesn't end with the flood, however. After being on the ark for about a year, the book of Genesis says that God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. 
And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Days before Noah steps off the ark, he sends out a raven. The raven flies back and forth, but ultimately doesn't return. And so then he sends out a dove, a clean bird that symbolizes holiness and purity. And on its final return to the ark, it brings back an olive branch, a sign of peace. And so when Noah sends out that dove one more time, it doesn't return, demonstrating to him that the dove has now found a new place to dwell on this new earth. So Noah knows it's time. He steps off the ark alongside his family and all the animals onto this new and dry land. One that has been judged and cleansed through the floodwaters to wash away all the wickedness that had poisoned it. But the question is, was it enough? Was it enough? Was this new earth, this new land, was it going to be enough? Was it going to be a place where sin didn't take over? Was it going to be different this time? And really, it starts off pretty good. Noah's first act in this cleansed earth, he builds an altar to the Lord and sacrifices a, a burnt offering, showing his true dedication and worship to God. And similar to what God says to Adam and Eve, he tells Noah to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. He gives him dominion over the animals, and he establishes a covenant with Noah. God says this, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. He then tells Noah that the sign of this covenant he is making with him will be a rainbow in the clouds. And whenever a rainbow appears, God will remember the covenant he made between Noah and all the living creatures on the earth. And the cool thing about the symbolism of the rainbow is not simply that it's just this, you know, beautiful kind of half-shaped colored thing in the sky, even though they are quite beautiful, but that misses the point. Rather, the Hebrew word for rainbow literally means bow, like a bow and arrow. It's the same word used for weapon. You see, after the flood, in this recreation of the world, God puts this rainbow in the sky and he's not only adorning the clouds with this pretty image, but God is hanging up his bow. He's hanging up his weapon. Author Chad Bird declares, The Lord has retired his weapon. It faces not downward at us, but upward at God. We are unthreatened by it. God transformed a weapon of war into an emblem of peace. By making this covenant with Noah and giving this sign of a rainbow, God is ultimately saying, I will not punish humanity in this way anymore. And if there comes a time of another judgment, I will take the implication of hum humankind's sins on myself. God commits himself never again to take such drastic measures against the world. And he promises to protect and provide for the entirety of creation. This covenant is unconditional, not depending on Noah or his descendants to do anything. Rather, it's based on God's faithfulness alone. And good thing it is. 
Because while everything starts out hunky-dory on this new dry land, it's not long before sin and wickedness creep back into the world. How long, you might ask? One chapter. One chapter in the scriptures. Noah and his family experience firsthand God's power and justice and judgment. But in one chapter, friends, Noah has planted a vineyard and become drunk on some of the fruit of its vine. He lays uncovered inside his tent where his sons recognize his nakedness and cover his body. Indulging in fruit, being naked and ashamed. Are we hearing the parallels here to Genesis 3? It's happening all over again. God cleansed everything outside the ark from sin. But sin still lurked inside the walls of that giant floating vessel. And so when the door was opened... And Noah's family stepped on to the dry land. That lingering sinfulness once again crept onto the earth. You see, Adam was born without sin, but chose to sin. Noah was born into sin and could never escape it. So was it enough? Was this recreated world enough? Unfortunately, not for long. Recently, Truman and I had to do some renovation work in our home. We found some water damage in our guest bathroom a few months ago. And upon further exploration, we discovered water damage additionally in our master bathroom and our kitchen. Fun times in the Murphy household. So we, of course, had a contractor come out and look at it and assess the damage to our home and the damage that it would do to our wallets. But it had to be done. And when the team came in to replace the subfloor and put these new beautiful flooring throughout these damaged areas, they discovered something quite interesting about our kitchen. The damage to the subfloor was only in like one spot, kind of in the middle of the room. And it wasn't because of a leak or, you know, anything coming from the sink or the fridge. I don't speak in technical terms, but you get my point. Rather, what they think happened is that there was some kind of like big topical spill or maybe a small flood. And so the homeowners went in and did minor repairs to the subfloor just in that one spot, just to put a Band-Aid on the issue. And so those minor repairs were only intended to last a little while until the future owners known as Truman and Emma Murphy would have to replace it. Their solution was only temporary. So often in our lives, we choose to rely on temporary fixes, temporary rescues to save ourselves. We're going through a really difficult season. We've lost our job or our marriage is struggling or our children are driving us crazy or we're overly stressed with all of our responsibilities or feeling lonely or hopeless. And so what do we do? We turn to temporary solutions to fix our problems, drinking to numb the pain, spending loads of money to make us happy, binge-watching TV to escape from reality, indulging in too much food to, uh, to cover up our insecurities. But friends, we can only drink so much, buy so much, watch so much TV, eat so much. These things might fix the problem for a day or two, but before you know it, you're back to where you were. You're back to where you started, overwhelmed, Anxious, sad, lonely, insecure. Temporary rescues might help us for a little while, but they can only last so long before they need a more permanent solution or before we completely hit rock bottom. 
this recreated earth was a temporary solution. This washing and cleansing in the flood was only a temporary rescue. It failed to eradicate sin forever. Noah played a very important part in God's plan of deliverance in the world. He and his family were chosen to help replenish the earth. But Noah couldn't fulfill the ultimate plan of salvation for humanity. Despite Noah's righteousness and favor in God's eyes, he was still human and sinful himself. But a couple millenniums later, there would be a man that would come to the earth and change everything. A man that would provide the greatest hope for us all. Jesus Christ became the man Adam chose not to be and the man Noah could never be. Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection said, I am enough. I am enough. Those floodwaters wiped out the entirety of humanity with the exception of Noah and his seven family members. Noah and his family only survived because of the ark's protection. Sure, Noah gave people, other people, a warning that the floods were coming. Sure, the ark was made available to everyone. But truth be told, I'm not so sure how much room was actually on that ark after putting all those animals on it. Ultimately, it wasn't designed for all of humanity to hold, to hold it. It wasn't designed for all of them to be on it. It was big, but it wasn't that big. And more than anything, the story of Noah and the flood required people to make the first move, to do all the hard work themselves. But the people didn't want to do the hard work. They refused the warnings and the opportunity to possibly squeeze onto the ark because they thought their freedom to live, they wanted to live however they wanted to. They thought that's what true freedom was. But Jesus, he is greater because he's done the hard work for us. Like Noah, Jesus was ridiculed and mocked throughout his lifetime because he was being obedient to his father in heaven. However, while Noah was able to climb into the ark to escape the punishment of the destructive waters for himself and his family, Jesus' life didn't end in protection for himself. Rather, Jesus was betrayed, tortured, beaten, and nailed to a wooden cross to ultimately die for the sins of humanity. He took on the punishment. He took on the judgment for all of us. He did not endure death for his own salvation. Rather, he became the new ark, the new vessel of salvation that is offered to us all. Through Jesus' death, we have been given new life, the ability to live life in abundance. Christ gave us true freedom, the freedom to become the people our God created us to be the freedom to be people to do God's will, people who walk in the way that leads to life, people who surrender everything we have, our money, our time, our relationships, everything to our God. That is true freedom, and that is only offered in Christ. The narrative of Noah and the flood proved to be only a temporary rescue, right? 
the floodwaters were only a short-term cleansing of the sin on earth. And Noah only temporarily obeyed God before he failed not long after putting his feet on the dry land. But the life and death of Jesus demonstrates something much greater. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Even when he knew how difficult the task was at hand, Jesus obeyed his Father completely. Yet not my will, but yours be done, Father. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is a once and for all time rescue. As he hung there on the cross, people stood watching and sneering at him. But John's gospel declares, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was finished. It is finished, friends. Three days later, Jesus did not stay in that tomb, but was resurrected from the dead. He completely defeated sin and death. And it is through his crucifixion and resurrection that we are rescued from the flood of sin and death in which the world is drowning. Jesus is a greater rescue because he is not temporary. He is the ultimate deliverer and savior. And like the promise of the rainbow, the bow was pointed towards him. He took on the ultimate judgment for humanity because of God's grace for all of us. While creation was washed in the flood, we are washed in Christ's blood. It is through Christ alone that we can experience this gift of new life, this gift of eternal life. And so I ask you today, friends, have you accepted this greater gift of Jesus? Are you truly living a life in Christ? The story of Noah reminds us of the urgency in this question, the urgency in this message. While God was patient with those in Noah's time, he was not forgetful. There was a time when there was no time left and the floodwaters began to rise. And the same is true for us as well. For Jesus says after his baptism, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news. God is a patient God, continuously calling us to himself, but there will be a time when there is no time left, for the kingdom of God has come near. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes to followers of Christ and, is, and exclaims, This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It is so easy for us to get comfortable and to slip back into the slumber of sin. It is easy, like the people in Noah's days, to be enveloped once again by darkness and believe that we have all the time in the world to wipe our tired eyes and repent. But Paul reminds us to wake up now and be reminded of the light of our salvation. Wake up, church. Wake up. The time is now to mend those broken relationships. Wake up. Now is the time to forgive. 
Wake up. Now is the time to work on your marriage. Wake up. Now is the time to stop being so bitter. Wake up. Now is the time to live a life in full surrender to Christ. But I think this passage has a dual meaning. It also exudes the importance of being reawakened with a new passion to be the light of the world for those around us who may still be drowning in the floodwaters of their sin. Not everyone may respond to our message. We, like Noah and Jesus, may be ridiculed and mocked. But as those who have been washed in Christ's blood, however, we play an important role in the mission of God to tell others the good news about Jesus, the greater Noah, the one who promises to protect, to rescue, and to save sinners from themselves. So how will you respond today, church? Will you ignore the warnings and get washed away in the flood? Or will you say yes to Jesus? Yes to this true freedom found in Christ. How will you respond today? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are so thankful to you this morning for being the greater rescue, for doing all the hard work, for going to the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, we are so guilty of falling short of your glory, so guilty of messing up every day but God, we come before you this morning and we repent of our sins. Lord, we ask you to come into our lives and to make us a new creation, a creation that longs to follow your will, longs to love and serve you better, and longs to point others to you, God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Jesus, we love you and lift up all these things in your strong name. Amen. Thank you, Emma. Rescue, what a word. And